Okay, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. We'll be reading our text here in, in a few minutes. Remember, the the book of Hebrews is written to a Hebrew Christian church. It's written by we don't know exactly whom. Uh, A lot of people assume it's the Apostle Paul, but we don't don't know that. Um, But he's writing to Hebrew Christians, a church of Hebrew Christians who were struggling a bit, who were having some uh, ideas maybe of quitting or, or losing out. And he was writing a book to encourage them. They were obviously a church who knew a lot about the, the law, about uh, the Old Testament practices and so on. And he uses a lot of examples from those scriptures to teach us great truths about Christ. And it's all about, it's all about Christ. Today we want to look at the great high priest. The uh, book of Hebrews in numerous places talks about Jesus as being a great high priest. And uh, I think the Hebrew Christians could relate to that word picture as something they could, they could relate to. There are many great truths, and so far in the book of Hebrews up to chapter 4, we looked at Jesus as being the God's final word to mankind. He is higher than the angels. He's greater than Moses, and he brings a better rest than Joshua could. There are no high priests around today, uh, at least not good high priests. Um, there, the, the, the office of a priesthood is, is something that was done away with in Christ. Um, I know there are different religions that use priests, but they are not legitimate uh, biblical offices to have today is that of a priesthood. That is done away with with Christ and in uh, his work. That was when the priesthood officially should have ended. He is the last and great high priest. Just a little bit of background about what a priest is. A priest is necessary because of sin. Sin entered into the world in the Garden of Eden. We know that Adam and Eve sinned. They had enjoyed close fellowship with God. Up until the time of their sin, they had related directly to God. They, God spoke to them. They enjoyed his presence. The Bible speaks to the fact that every day, it almost seemed like a daily occurrence that when God would walk out in the garden and, and, and relate to Adam and Eve and they would have close fellowship. Well, sin changed all of that to where Adam and Eve could no longer come boldly into God's presence. They were banished from the garden. A flaming sword was kept there to keep them from the garden. And uh, because holy God cannot tolerate sin in his presence. We don't read about priests until uh, a very unusual character uh, is brought to mention in the Bible. In Genesis 14, it mentions a, a man named Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a priest and a king, the Bible says. 
a priest and a king. He was a priest of the Most High God. He was the king of Salem, which later became Jerusalem. And he was, he was a priest of the Most High God. And this is the first record of, of a priest in the Bible. Um, there was no record of his lineage. We don't know where he came from. We don't know who his parents were. But he shows up there in the account of Abram when Abram was coming back from his victorious uh, rescue of his nephew Lot from the kings that had taken him and his family away. He was coming back with all the goods and all the loot that he had gotten from the the kings. And uh, you don't need to turn to it, but let me read a few verses from Genesis 14. It says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Okay, this is very interesting. As they were coming back from the victorious uh, rescue, there met him this king from Salem. I don't know if they were going by Jerusalem or what the deal was, but he came out bearing bread and wine. And we could talk about that for quite a while, but that was a symbolic of, of God's blessing, the bread and the wine. And he brought them out, it says, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, Creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Abram gave him a tenth of the spoil that he brought back from his capture. And he, he gave a tithe to, to this Melchizedek. And the Melchizedek blessed Abram. Something you may not realize or may have thought about, you know it, but you may not have thought about it recently, that when you tithe, you are acknowledging something. You're acknowledging that everything that you have belongs to someone else. And as a recognition of that, I'm giving them a tenth of it. And they're allowing me to keep the rest. So Abram basically is saying to Melchizedek, I'm giving you a tithe because you represent God and everything belongs to God. God said later through his uh, writer here, Hebrews, that Jesus would be a priest like Melchizedek. Well, moving on down through history just a little bit, we know that the priesthood was very prominent in the tabernacle and it was established during the passage from Egypt to the land of Canaan. And it was centered around the tabernacle and later the temple. And those uh, buildings had three basic areas to them. There was an outer courtyard where the sacrifices were were taking place. Um, There was a large brazen altar there where lots of animals were constantly being burnt, the sacrifices. They would spread spread blood around the foot of the altar and on the horns of the altar. There was the gold, there was the, the, the laver. I think it was also made of brass where the priests were constantly washing as they entered, before they entered the temple, the tabernacle or the temple. And then uh, you got into the, the tabernacle itself, which was known as the holy place. And inside that holy place, there were three articles of, of furniture. There was a table of the showbread where they kept fresh bread all the time. They kept changing out the showbread. And there was a golden candlestick or the menorah where the, the, uh, the, the burning of the candles were and the seven candlesticks. 
And then back on the back end of that part of the uh, building, there was the altar of incense, where incense was offered before God. Through the large curtain then, there was the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, where the angels were uh, sculpted with their wings basically touching each other over the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, there was the two tables of stone, which, which, can, which had inscribed on them the Ten Commandments. And uh, for a period of time, there was also Aaron's rod that budded, that was placed in there. And there was the golden pot, pot of manna that was also inside this chest. Now those were later gone. I don't know what happened to them, but later on, if we read in, in the history of Israel, there was only the Ark of the Covenant containing the uh, Ten Commandments, the two tables of stone. The high priest would take blood into the Holy of Holies once every year. He, there was a huge amount of ceremony involved where he would wash himself and he would offer sacrifice for himself and then also for the people. And then he would take some of that blood and once a year on the Day of Atonement, what is known today as Yom Kippur, he would go in there and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat and offer atonement for the people. That was what the, one of the most important functions of the high priest was to do that. Let's look just a little bit more at the functions of the high priest in Israel. The high priest was a, uh, a very high office. He was a priest that was ordained by God. And a number of characteristics I want to talk about just now in, in the background for our scripture today. First of all, it was a divine appointment. We're going to be reading from Hebrews 5 where it says, Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So the high priest was selected by God. He was not someone who ran for office or was selected by the people. He was a worship leader. That was the function of the high priest. He was a worship leader. Today in many of our churches... Uh, not in our church, but in many churches today, this morning, they have a worship leader that will stand up front and they will lead them in worship, a lot of times singing or, or whatever. But they were a worship leader and they were he was ministering to the people. He would present incense before God. He would sprinkle the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement. He was a mediator between men and God. And he would come into God's presence and then return again to the people. Very important office, the office of, of a high priest. <clears throat> and it started with Aaron. He was knowledgeable in, in uh, forgiveness and worship and expiation. He was a uh, religious source of religious knowledge. He was also a representative of the people. I don't know if you studied this at all, but the high priest, he was very ornamented. He, he had a lot of things on his clothes and part of those were there to show that he represented the people before God. He had on his shoulders two onyx stones mounted on his garment. And on each of these two onyx stones, there were inscribed six names, the six 
tribes of Israel, six here, six there. They were, went with him. And on his breastplate there were twelve gems, twelve stones, each with the name of one of the tribes of Israel. As he would go into the presence of God, he was representing the people. In other words, when he showed himself to God, when he went into the Holy of Holies, he was representing all the people out there, good and bad and, and otherwise. He was representing the people. The people were considered to be in him as he went in there. Um, and he was there to represent them. Exodus 28 verse 12 says, Aaron is to bear the names on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. So he represented the people as he went into God's presence. He offered sacrifice. We know that there was a lot of blood shed as they offered sacrifices and then took the blood, in this case, once a year into the mercy seat. He was also an intercessor. He provided a ministry of intercession for the people. You all may have heard the story about the bells and the rope that was supposedly attached to the high priest as he went into the Holy of Holies so that if he was not right and God smote him dead, they could pull him out because the bells stopped ringing. Well, that's a fable. It's not actually a fact. That did not happen. This came on as a story much later on. It sounds interesting, but that was not actually the case. Okay, another bit of background in our lesson today, and that is the incarnation of Christ. I want to mention just a little bit that God became man for us. And He needed to, to become our high priest. He needed to become, take on human form. And I want to read that scripture there in Philippians 2. He says, Who, speaking of Jesus being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This sets us up for our text today. We know there was a necessity of a high priest, someone to represent the people to God. Because mankind had become sinful and could no longer directly come into God's presence. Jesus became flesh. He took on him the form of humanity. If you have your Bibles open to Hebrews 4, I want to read from verses 14 to 5, verse 10. Let's stand together. If you have that open, let's stand together to read the scripture. <clears throat> I'll read from the authorized version this morning. Hebrews 4, verse 14 through 5, verse 10. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, 
that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for he himself also is compassed or compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor upon himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. He saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered us up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears, unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, Though he were a son, yet he learned, learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You may be seated. I want to look now at Jesus. And how that Jesus is our high priest. And how that the text here gives us a lot of good qualifications about Christ. And how he fills the role as our high priest. First of all, I want to say that he is a qualified high priest. He is qualified to be that. Only certain people could do that in the old times up until Christ, their bodies had to be cleansed, their clothes had to be clean, they had to put on the right clothes, and they needed to wash very many times and have blood as they went into the holy place. How is Jesus qualified to be our high priest? First of all, I want to say that he is appointed by God. He is appointed by God. Jesus was appointed by God. He did not take this upon himself. He, uh, God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He was designated by God as, as our high priest. We know that he agreed to do that. Secondly, he was sinless, is sinless. Unlike the high priest of the Old Testament times who needed to offer for himself an offering, Jesus did not need to do that by the power of his own righteousness. He was able to go in without need of cleansing. I want to read a scripture from Hebrews 7. It says, Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. I think it's very important that we understand that Christ on earth was sinless. He did not commit sin. He was tempted, the Bible says, in all points like we are, but without sin. And um, there would be some who say that, you know, Jesus really couldn't know what we know because he never sinned. He never yielded. 
In response to that, C.S. Lewis says, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Not only, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full extent or full what temptation means, the only complete realist. He never yielded. He resisted, he resisted, he resisted, he resisted. He never yielded to sin. He was sinless. And as such, he qualified for our high priest. Thirdly, it was his access to God which qualified him. He is in heaven, the Bible says, as God's son. In the Old Testament, the high priest only went in once a year for a short period. Hebrews 10 says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. John in his epistle, first epistle says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. He is at the Father's right hand, the Bible says, interceding for us. He's right there. He has God's ear. Number four, he is qualified because he is timeless. Hebrews 7 says there have been many of those priests since death that prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he, is always, he always lives to intercede for them. There was no changeover in priesthood. There was a good continuity. He is completely aware of what's been going on forever and knows what's happening in our lives, and he uh, continues timelessly representing us. Completely obedient was the other qualification. Hebrews 5, our text, verse 7 says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect or complete, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. I think this is important for us to see that Jesus came down to earth and was submissive to his Father's will. I, You know, you say, how could God, why would Jesus need to learn obedience? Well, Jesus never had to obey before. He never had to submit his will before. He learned obedience when he was on earth. He learned obedience 
because he of his humanity, because he took on himself human form. He submitted himself to his father. And that experience made him complete. I think that would probably be a better word to use than perfect. It means the same thing in this context. Complete in submission, complete in understanding, complete in experience, complete in his ability to relate to human limitations, his willingness to come to earth and be incarnated as a human being was in submission to his father's will. So the points that the writer to the Hebrew makes here is that we have a qualified high priest. He qualifies in every regard to be our high priest. Secondly, I'd like to say that he's a sympathetic high priest. If you have your Bibles open to our text, I'd like to invite you to look at verses 14 and 15. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. This, I think, is the heart of our message this morning, is that he is a sympathetic high priest. Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. Earlier in Hebrews chapter 2, it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. You know, if Jesus had never come to earth, there would be those of us who would, who would question whether he really knows what we're going through. There would be those of us who question to say, Jesus, you know, you're God. You never had to go through what I have to go through. You never experienced the things that I've had to experience in life. How can you know you, never, you haven't been there? And when people sympathize with us, sometimes we're in our mind, we're saying that. You don't know what I've gone through. You don't know. You haven't been there. How can you say, you know, it's going to be okay because you haven't been where I have been. Jesus, in order to be our sympathetic high priest, experienced everything that we go through. Every type of temptation that we experience, he experienced. He shared our humanity. First of all, he shared our humanity in that he shared our physical limitations. You know, I, we sing that Christmas song, Little Lord Jesus in a manger, you know, no crying he makes. Yeah, he cried. Of course he cried. He had belly aches. Just like your little child does. He stubbed his toes. He had pimples. He was a young person that went through, through emotional upheaval like only young people can go through. He, went, he experienced all these things like we do. He knows where we're coming from. He had accidents like we have. I'd like you to go with me for, in your mind's eye to a, a third grade classroom in a school. 
for just a minute. And there's a young man in there about nine years old. And all of a sudden he notices that his pants is wet right up front there. And there's a pool of water coming down on the floor. And he's mortified. He's never wet his pants before. But he wet his pants and he's got water. He's got, uh, he's got this dripping right down on the floor. And he's, the teacher's going to find out in a minute. And he is never going to live this down. And he puts his head down on the desk and says, Dear Jesus, I'm in a terrible fix. They're going to find this out. The girls are going to make fun of me. The boys aren't going to have anything to do with me. And uh, there comes the teacher. And he's going to be discovered. And just as the teacher's coming, little Sally is walking down the aisle and she's got a goldfish bowl in her hands and she empties it right in his lap. She trips and empties it right in his lap. And he acts indignant, but he's saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And everybody's scurrying around, cleaning up the mess, and the teacher's being all nice and giving him gym pants and stuff so that he can he can get dried up and everything is everybody's all happy, you know, really taking care of him. And he goes throughout the day and he's thinking about this thing. And he sees little Sally at the end of the day when they're waiting for the bus, and he goes up to her and he says, Sally, you did that on purpose. She said, Yeah, I, I wet my pants one time too. I use that illustration to say that he knows he's a sympathetic high priest. He's been there. He knows exactly where we're coming from. And there's not a one of us in this room can't say, you don't know where I am. You don't know what I'm going through. Because he is our sympathetic high priest. He knows exactly where we are. He knows how we feel. You know, I was feeling frustrated one day this past week and I was having this big old problem and I couldn't get to the bottom of it. Something wasn't right and the part they sent me probably isn't working and, and something is very wrong. And all of a sudden I realized my own, <laughs> my own uh, failure. I, I, I don't know what's going on. I can't fix this. And all of a sudden I realized my own limitations. Well, we can feel very, very low about our own limitations, our own failures. We realize that Jesus knows exactly where we are. And I, I would like us to take that to, to heart as we think about Jesus and how we relate to him. He knows where we're coming from. He knows all about us. He knows what makes us tick and what ticks us off. He knows where we're coming from. He shared in our humanity. He has been one of us. He is sympathetic to our weakness. He knows... Um, he experienced weakness. I don't know if you really realize how weak he was on earth. You know, when he cried out to God, our text says that he cried out with tears to the one who was able to, to save him. Because in his humanity, he had to pray to the Father. You know, I've had people tell me who don't believe that Jesus was God. They say, well, why did he have to pray to his Father? He had to pray to his Father because in his humanity, he was weak. And he had to rely on God for strength. In his humanity, he gave up the privileges of the Godhead temporarily when he came to earth. And in his humanity, he was weak. He experienced 
weakness. After 40 days of fasting, he was very weak. After a long, hot day on the road, he was very tired and hot. And probably didn't feel all that good either. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he was very, very, very troubled. He was very, very, uh, things looked very dark to him. He's sympathetic to our weakness. He's sympathetic to our pain. He understands our pain. He experienced pain like we experience and worse. He, was, he is sympathetic to our temptation. When we're tempted to, to, uh, to fudge the truth and to make ourselves look better. When we're tempted to lust. When we're tempted to covet. When we're tempted to take revenge. When we're tempted to become discouraged. He knows. He knows those feelings. He knows our frustrations. He, is temp- he, he experienced frustrations as well. He's patient because he also felt frustrations. He's been there. He knows all about it. Psalm 103 says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. And this is God speaking, but then his son experienced it also. He is on our frequency. I'd like to use an illustration that you may have heard before. I don't know, but he is on our frequency. Some of you are musically inclined or know something about music and sound. But there's a thing called frequency that that sound vibrations are on a certain frequency, a certain interval, certain amount of times per per a minute or whatever. And uh, I saw this demonstrated one time with a, uh, with a glass. You could take that, and I could do an experiment here today if I had the time and, and wanted to. There was, you could take two glasses of water, fill them both the same amount, and take your finger and wet it and, and make the, the glass squeal over here. And the glass that's beside it, who is not being touched by you, will begin to resonate at that same frequency. And you can, they actually proved that by taking a, 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 a business card and putting it on top of the glass. And you take and do the squealing bit, and over there the, the business card starts vibrating and eventually falls off. If you take the glass and actually put different levels of water in it, it won't do it. Because the frequency that it's tuned to is different. It won't respond. And I use that illustration to show that he is on our frequency. He knows he knows, he knows the things that, that affect us. He's a sympathetic high priest. He is also an approachable high priest. Finally, he is an approachable high priest. Uh, the center of our text, if you will, the, the focus. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This comes down to the practical part of the message today, and that is that we can approach our high priest 
because he is approachable. I'd like to say first that we all have big needs. We all need help. We have these big needs. I need help every day. I'll say that as a personal testimony. I need God's help every day. We're weak. We're confused. We have all kinds of limitations that we become more and more aware of as we get older, I think, our limitations. We have huge needs. Brother Amos mentioned that he's going to get a checkup this week and that that is a need for him. We all have needs. We all have huge needs that we can make God aware of. We have sins. We have sins in our lives that we need to take care of. We have sins that bother us, sins that keep troubling us. And you know, the sins make us guilty, make us experience guilt, and we want to run away and hide. We don't want to go to God because we feel guilty. We know that we don't deserve help with our needs, and we can feel kind of trapped in that situation. We need grace. The more I thought about that point as I put it down on my notes, the more I thought about it, the more I I went back and I capitalized it and, and made it bold and underlined it. I realized how much we need God's grace. We need grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor on us. Things that we don't deserve. It's His enabling power that lets us go through life. It's His grace. We need His grace. I need His grace every day. We don't have what it takes on our own. And because He is an approachable high priest, we can come to Him and ask for grace. With our family, with a problem child, with loneliness, with health, With my job, with my finances, I can come to him and I can say, I need grace. You know, I have choices and we have, what are my choices? I can deny my need and pretend I am a superman and don't need help. I can say I don't need help or I can try to drown it out with all kinds of diversions. And I see that so much in our culture. Our culture is full of diversion. Things that we can do to take our mind away from our situation. We can divert our mind from what's really going on. And that's a huge industry in our culture. It's diversion. I can, or I can give away to despair. But the command here in Scripture, the invitation, if you will, is let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. The throne of grace, that's where grace can, can be gained so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help, to help us in our time of need. You know, the veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom at the crucifixion when Christ gave his life. The veil, the Bible says in Matthew, the veil, the huge, heavy five layers of cloth that were there, huge, heavy knit cloth was just ripped from top to bottom. And the Holy of Holies was exposed and now became available. 
He said, it's finished, Jesus did. And then he gave up his spirit. I want to read a scripture from Hebrews 10. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The throne of grace. That's where we want to go. I had, I have on my desk in my study a little statue. And this is a picture of it. I saw it in the Christian book distributors catalog and I really was impressed with it and my wife gave it to me as a gift. But the reason I like it so much is because it symbolizes for me how I feel at times when a message is due. <laughs> and uh, I don't feel adequate. I don't know where I'm going to turn because I'm just running into a wall. And, I, you know, I experienced that. Just all of a sudden, I just, I just can't do it. It's, it's not coming. And uh, here's this old preacher praying to God for, for help. And, uh, you know, all of us, I think, should approach the throne of grace. You know, and it doesn't need to be in a special setting. It can be anywhere. It can be on the job. It can be in any situation that I'm in, at home and, and uh, on the job or traveling, whatever. When I realize my need, I can approach the throne of grace and find mercy. Because I do have access to God through the great high priest. Job, one of the more emotional Scenes that I know from Job, something that really touched me is Job chapter 16, verse 19. It says, even now, and Job had amazing insight. Even now, my witness, he says, is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend as my eyes pour out tears to God. On behalf of a man, he pleads with God as a man pleads for his friend. This is... Job looking at Jesus as his intercessor with God. My dear children, 1 John 2, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if you, anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours also, but also for the sins of the whole world. We can come to the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus is our great high priest. And he is at the right hand of the Father for us. I hope that a, look, a glimpse at the book of Hebrews in this teaching has been a blessing to you. Shall we have a, uh, a closing song for the joke?